so um, hello everyone. Uh, thanks uh, for another you know uh, great conversation today with Sahir Ali, uh, founder and general par partner of uh, Modi. Um, Sahir, uh, it's a pleasure to connect with you. Um, one of the taglines of the podcast is to challenge the future. And based on our conversation just a few minutes ago, I think you are in the perfect position to do that. So listen, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I would love to start you know, uh, talking about this uh, venture capital uh, world uh, you know, and what you look in, in founders. So um, yeah, from, from, from the start, so how, how you landed in this world? So from a career perspective, and now that you, know, you, are, you have experience and you know, deep knowledge in this area, so how you evaluate potential investments in that area? So give us a little bit of your, your background story in that sector. Yeah, and thanks for having me, by the way. I'm excited to be here. How I got into venture. Well, um, to go a little bit to start with my background, I, I spent quite a bit of time um, and as an academic was doing some work uh, at the intersection of oncology and artificial intelligence for good eight years. Uh, started at the end of my undergrad, got into grad school with this, published papers. And, and uh, you know, those days AI was not as of a big, big buzzword. And, but, but we were, we were kind of ahead of the time in, in now applying this to uh, look at the, how we can predict outcomes of cancer. And so you can actually think of that kind of work almost like a startup because there was an angle of always translating that research. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, I've been an entrepreneur as well. And there's, there's a few things uh, done that, that ended up being an exit. So I think a lot of these is sort of in parallel kind of uh, came together. And so last uh, few years, uh, we have been investing out of our family office, our own capital in this space. Um, and so, so to speak, the proverbial skin in the game with our own capital, we start to see a few trends emerge. And so last year, when there was sort of a dip in the capital markets, especially in the private markets where the capital started to dry up, interest rates went up. And so we decided to spin out that strategy of how we were investing, particularly uh, in the exponential technologies, and especially technologies at the intersection of bio and medicine into a proper fund. And so that's how we actually launched Modi Ventures. And, um, and, and I think that was an interesting time last year uh, because we had seen 81% decline in funding over the last, compared to a year before, uh, which was 2021. And uh, and we were able to raise this fund in about a month, and so that's what our strategy was, which is a great validation for us. But that's so that's some of the background on on how it led up to that. And uh, one of the interesting things about our fund is that we also invest in other funds as well as direct investment. So we kind of sit right nicely in the m middle of the venture ecosystem. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And that's a, it's a super interesting story because uh, my so my experience is mostly in financial services, but one of the things that called my attention is that financial services is a very data-rich industry. But I think if you look at the health sector, like the complexity of the data must be 
just incredible. When applying AI on top of that, I think it's something totally fascinating, despite the fact that it's just beyond my knowledge. But I just imagine the you know the the, the good that can cr be created as a result of this kind of intersection. Um, yeah. Hey, you actually, since you brought that up, I think it's actually it is fascinating. It's almost uh, we can think about that that we have a big data sort of floating in our own bodies. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> the best way, and this is not my analogy, but the best analogy to think about this is is that um, is that what we don't have yet, and we will. This is what AI can start to enable is that we can create the Google Map of a human body. I mean, I meant a human body for individually, you or yours and mine. And and why Google map is that uh, when we look at a Google map, it has so many layers of information kind of collapsed into one. And so on a particular location, you have the lowest point, which is longitude and latitude. But on top of that, you have the, what zip code you're in, yeah. what street you're on, what's the view of that street? Are there lights there? Uh, you have the raster information, then you have the census information. All of that is in on the Google map layered, but these are different modalities of data, right? 3D, 2D, sometimes text. Um, and so you layer that up and you've created this sort of a, you know, what we call the Google map and a lot of applications use it. And so I think we have a very similar thing going on in the human body, right? So you have the genomics, which are the core, the single cell, which has our DNA. From DNA, you have the sort of the proteins, such so as genomics and the proteomics, and then you have the gut bacteria, which is the microbiomics. All of that, it's this, the whole multi-omics stack. And then you have the variable data and, and and a lot of that stuff sort of start to, you know, talk about the disease kind of in a similar way, but different data sets, right? And so how do you actually start to even analyze this? Humans can't do it. There's no one single human that can look at all the data. This is, I think, where the where really the AI intersection is extremely fascinating and the yeah. future kind of holds that but yes something you mentioned kind of made me realize that um that's uh, that's probably a good way to look at that yeah no absolutely i think um where i see people struggling the most i think across many industries is exactly what you said about you know complexity of the data and and i think there's a cultural aspect here because sometimes i see people um in in, in different sectors thinking at you know well we are humans and therefore we are smart enough to deal with that. But I think there's a limit of variables we can hold in our heads at any given time. And I think the question, and um, and, and sorry if I'm probably going too deep in that, but I would like oh, to this, get your perspective. You know, do you believe that, you know, AI is a fundamental, let's say, decision tool for health professionals? Because I have seen that in other sectors. I, I think it is, but I would love to hear your perspective. Like making better yeah. decisions because you know you have better tools. Yes, look, I think health care and delivery is uniquely a human-centric field. Uh, I am not, you know, one example that, that I'd like to give is when I was when I was in early days of high school, early 2000s in Houston. We started to see proliferation of these machines called U-Scan. We used to call them U-Scans. Actually, that was the company that was making them. 
basically these are scanners next to cashiers where you can scan yourself and just leave without dealing with the cashiers. They started proliferating. And, and I remember seeing an article here in local Houston Chronicles that the era of cashierless uh, time has come because all these robotic machines will take over. I think the prediction said something like in the next five years, we're not going to see cashiers anymore. Well, I guess what happened a couple decades later? Yeah. Do we still have cashiers? Yes. Why is that? We have the technology to replace them, right? We have the technology to replace them. We have technology now to even be completely cashierless for a number of years now. Uh, it would make sense to even reduce the overhead, but grocery stores and retail stores don't replace cashiers because it's a high touch point. This is how you build royalty. This is how you interact. This is a uniquely human-centric experience. I think health and healthcare delivery is actually one of those areas. I would say, I would argue that it's even more high touch point because yeah. this is about sometimes life and death. This is about the most most unique thing that makes us alive. And it's about that. So there, I think in my opinion, they will at least for a, a, a long while to come, healthcare will be human centric. Now, where, where we're lacking is is there are obviously shortcomings and and so I think those might uh, those functions may get replaced or what or as we as we call it a decision support system will start to come in. A good example of what already is here is in optometry, right? So uh, there were times a couple of decades ago, I mean even 10, 15 years ago, the optometry experience used to be a little bit different. Uh, the machines uh, that are now completely automated, they give the readings out to the optometrist. Optometrist gets an entire report now just has to validate a few things. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. They had to figure out a few things yeah. on um, all of that. So the machine had also automated quite a bit of cycle. In fact, uh, an optometrist can see you very, very fast and, and can see more patients. The other, you know, similarly, uh, if you look at the field of radiology, a radiologist, not saying radiologists get replaced, but there are, you know, uh, they're looking at, they're looking at contrast images and, you know, the MRI images and AI can really help identify areas and, and they can, you know, really improve the workflow, make their decisions uh, uh, more uh, advanced and, and make sure that we don't miss on things. But I don't think we're, we're in a time period where, where radiologists will be replaced by an algorithm because yeah. again, it's, uh, there always needs, well, for those sort of things, we need uh, a human in the loop as we call it. So I think to answer your question, I think there are especially areas where, where artificial intelligence and any other technology can come in and, and, and really advance those areas or replace those functions that may be uniquely human, but I think the delivery of the health and the care will always be human-centric because it is that. And so that, yeah. those are my thoughts. Uh, there are some areas that we can double, uh, double click on, but, but uh, that's, that's no, kind no, of I, how I, I think about this. I appreciate that. No, thank you. Because I, I think I subscribe to the to the same kind of way of thinking, you know, this more human centric view of AI. I'm just a little bit too tired from the main, let's say, headlines where people are very, you know, pessimistic in terms of the future of AI. And I, I think we're on the same page there. I see AI as something that will empower us, not only healthcare but in other sectors to, I don't know, to deliver better service, to become better professionals, and. Yeah. Uh, in, in, from, from your point of view, uh, in, from a venture capital perspective, so uh, your investments and where you see the market going, 
So what are some of the most exciting, let's say, impactful trends or innovations in the tech, bio, and health technology space you know, that you're following or eventually investing in? So what's exciting in that space? Well, I'll have to start with the most exciting thing, the thing that happened um, in the last few days, and perhaps a step, a big step for humanity is that um, uh, the FDA and the UK government approved the first uh, gene editing uh, therapy that is now in human, right? And that that was a big milestone, uh, not only for gene editing world but for humanity. What that means is that that instead of just um, binding to the protein that has already caused the disease and tried to just kill something, we can actually go into the, the, our genome and and really correct that that mistake in the genes, which is which is which is which is monumental. And so the era of gene, gen, uh, genetics medicine is here. I think it was here in R and D, but now it's actually as a therapy available for sickle cell and sickle cell has no cure. So we can actually, what that means as a sexy punchline is that we can actually edit away gene, uh, edit away disease, like as if we have a word processor of just manipulating our DNA. Right. And so that, I think that has to be the most exciting thing. And I've been following that for a while. And, and there are some more, there are further interesting things that are happening in that space. So just to talk a little bit about gene editing, the CRISPR technology that this is based on, um, Jennifer Doudna's work, and she got a Nobel Prize for this in 2018, I believe. But really her work, uh, this work was already published, you know, 14 years ago and sometime earlier. But it takes a while to prove this out in, in clinical trials. And, and now we actually have a next gen of that technology called uh, um, base pair editing. So CRISPR technology, Cas9, that this was approved, this therapy. Imagine it's, it's almost like a scissor. It can cut a part of DNA, yeah. which has the the incorrect uh, gene, and it will replace it with something. With uh, with the base pair editing, we can actually go in and precisely edit that gene. So it's almost like you were in the DOS world and you wrote um, a sentence or line without a mouse. You had to go backspace to correct something. But imagine a word processor with a mouse where you can you don't have to do the entire line. You can just go in the middle of it where the error is. So that's base for editing. I'm actually excited to follow that space uh, that is still in the clinical trials. But anybody that listening, base pair editing, especially David Liu's work out of Harvard, you would want to follow that. It's it's uh, phenomenal. I think this is uh, this is the next gen stuff. Amazing. So in terms of biggest trend, I think that is that is the most exciting one. Uh, the other one obviously is where. I think artificial intelligence in medicine, particularly, is starting to uh, make inroads. Uh, there are areas in oncology, especially in medical imaging, and areas that I think um, where we can really augment human capabilities and human capacity. I think it's uh, starting to be a pretty exciting space, and I think it's an investable space now. Amazing. Uh, and, Amazing. and obviously, last part is I am also an artificial intelligence investor, and so everything that's happened. Um, especially since the advent of transformers in the last couple of years. Uh, it's, it's AI has really come out of winter and into well into spring and now summer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, that's, no, that's uh, amazing. That makes me feel more optimistic uh, in relation to you know, the future. There are so many you know, negative headlines recently. I don't, I wonder why this kind of 
headlines not making you know as much noise as it should so thanks thanks for sharing that and um on on, the, on that aspect on the regulatory aspect so um I, I remember before this milestone this was a fairly controversial subject people with you no know, with views against people um, with a more fa favorable view of the topic in your view uh, what why is that so this regulatory ethical social implications of applying you know tech bio and health tech uh, to human health and well-being so what why why do you think people sometimes have this kind of more skeptical view um is that you no know, justified yeah I, I mean i think one part of this is sensationalizing something because in the era of social media mm -hmm. you know juicy punchlines make yeah better news and better virality but i think if 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 we just take an example of i guess gene editing space and crispr i think some of the concerns and um and fear are rightly grounded so i think especially what happened and so i think we need to go back a little bit 2018 i believe was the first ever gene editing conference that happened where the the CRISPR, which is a mechanism that is found in bacteria, the Cas9, the protein, there were about thousand labs or so were experimenting with that once it was published in um, a couple of decades ago. And so they, they finally had the first conference. And in that conference, all the labs around the world presented their research. And there was a Chinese scientist who presented that they actually took this and edited the, an embryo or a baby. And there was a collective shock uh, for in that room. And obviously what came out of that is the sensational headlines that were in the era of designer baby, everybody, babies. Now everybody would remember that. But really the, the, the backdrop, backdrop of that was this small sort of gene editing conference with a few hundred scientists. And that's where this Chinese... Uh, uh, the scientists dropped the ball, uh, dropped this sort of, so to speak, bomb on on uh, the audience. What happened as a consequence of that is actually Chinese government uh, jailed him, and he spent significant, I think, a number of years in jail for wow. doing that. In fact, eventually, that baby also died, was born and died, and so, so I think that that fear of, of, of these sort of technologies going rogue or going getting in the wrong hands and and the societal implications are are there i mean what what and so one 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 thing for all, all of us to uh, understand is that when this technology gets sufficiently advanced what are some of the non-therapeutics aspects of that is we, we need to worry about right therapeutics makes a lot of sense right i mean mm -hmm. there are so many diseases we're born with it's just fate we can now start to actually make sure that we are not uh, beholden to what we can't control so yes, we should turn off those disease and things like that. But should parents have the ability to edit the genes so that a child gets a blue blue eyes or certain traits? Where do we stop as a society? I think what are mm -hmm. some of the non-therapeutics? How do we regulate that? I think that these are these are important questions we should ask. But I think to answer your question, some of the the fear and 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 um and negative headlines, I think it's just part and parcel of any new stuff that starts to appear like magic. And so that's just... That, just that's like AI, right? AI yeah, is that, the same thing. Yeah, that's how it goes.
Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But at the same time, um, this kind of, um, you know, adventure is very inspirational because there are many people looking at you as a, as a role model, as someone you know, to be followed. And from that perspective, so what, what are these, let's say, these skills and, 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 and competences that these, you know, these are essential for tech, bio and health technology entrepreneurs and professionals? So people... Yeah trying to follow your steps basically yeah look i mean i'm just an investor so really it's about the founders they're the, they're the ones really generating the ideas and and being very creative and and have the vision to execute my job and people like us our job is to really partner with them and make sure they're successful uh, in terms of providing capital and resources and everything else so it's really about them but I think it would maybe a little bit useful to define what tech bio really is versus say biotech. And I think yeah. this term is not as mainstream, but it is sort of starting to become one. And, and so typically when you think of biotech, biotech has been, uh, I think some people would say that the era of biotechnology really started with, with uh, Genentech where we uh, could use the recombinant DNA and we could now start to create, uh, you know, insulin and things in the lab. Um, and so, so since then, since that time, the biotech has been about discovering molecules or small molecules or uh, something similar. It's about single asset. It's about this, what we call the business of a billion dollar molecule. You can find one, you can target a particular disease and you go through 14 years of life cycles on average from the time you discover something and then you're going into the animal models and the human testing and then, and, and sort of the entire sort of life cycle and the capital and the resources is all about a single molecule or a single asset. And so that's typically your biotech life cycle from an investor perspective, but also from scientific perspective and company perspective and all. And Large pharmaceutical companies will have these programs, right? That they will have multiple assets, they're advancing, but they're they're sufficiently large. And so they can advance some of those things in parallel. But a, a small biotech company typically is about a single asset, right? They're they're advancing that in hopes that either they will take it to market or get scooped up by a large pharma company, which is eminent. Now, tech bio is actually sort of in some senses pretty much a reverse of that. It's technology enabled bio. That's why it's really short for tech bio. In there, you're really trying to bring the engineering principle and technolo te technological advances to the field of bio and medicine. And one of the one of the most prominent examples of tech bio field is AI based drug discovery. Drug discovery has been a quite a manual process. An entire PhD or postdoctorate is focused on finding those hits, one or two hits, we can now do that under a week or two and find hundreds of hits through machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so, and those companies are not about single asset, but they're really about platforms because you have a platform to discover many things or you can have multiple programs. So you're not really just an asset company, you're a technology company. Another way to understand that is Moderna. In fact, if you look at Moderna's punchline for last since 2010 when they came out, they never said they were a biotech company. They're saying they're an mRNA technology platform. mRNA is a delivery 
uh, mRNA, how to target mRNA and uh, sort of uh, instruct the cells to produce certain antibodies or do something as a platform, they can target many different indications or areas, right? So for example, uh, they did get into vaccines when pandemic came, but eventually they were also targeting designer vaccines, oncology areas. These are all platforms, mm -hmm. not a single asset, right? And so that's tech bio. And and you you'd ask like how how do how do founders think about this space? I think it, over the last four or five years, a lot of money went into tech bio space. There was a lot of exuberance. Some things have worked. Some things haven't worked. And so we have a good framework of that. There were companies that actually became uh, decacorns as well in this space. Uh, they tried to advance some of the molecules they found through AI. Unfortunately, uh, those haven't panned out well. They either failed in phase one or phase two because safety and um, uh, efficacy or toxicity weren't really well understood. So one of the lessons learned was that it's not enough to just discover hits, as we call it, that can bind to a uh, disease protein. But it's also important to understand what's the biology underneath it. So we can actually start to make sure that uh, when you advance this in human trials, it won't fail because we never understood the biology and the efficacy and, and the toxicity. So anyways, that's kind of the landscape of tech bio. But tech bio, one other area of tech bio is also, in my opinion, the intersection of AI into medicine, where you're developing platforms that can help pathology uh, and radiology uh, to do uh, things better in the workflow improvements and things like that. Amazing, amazing. So um, one of the things uh, you mentioned there around, you know, this shortened uh, life cycle between research and, you know, a go-to-market, uh, do, do you think um, our, let's say, a wider uh, society is ready for this kind of pace. I'm just thinking in terms of what we have seen during the pandemic. Um, I think Moderna probably was uh, an outlier in terms of, you know, from the vaccine research to making that available to people. But when you think about the broad spectrum of diseases and health problems we see, um, do you believe, you know, AI will accelerate that? So make us, you know, reach re uh, answers uh, much quicker, but at the same time, do, do you think our, let's say, traditional construct, I mean, the traditional commercial aspects of, of the business, you know, um, the, sometimes I, I'm under the impression these two things conflict with each other. It's almost like you hold back the, the cure to sell all the medicines you have, and that's a kind of very old school thinking. So, What's your view on that? Because I think the tech is great and we, we are very positive, but are we prepared as professionals and let's say business leaders to maybe redefine value beyond the monetary aspects, if that makes sense? Yes, I, I think I think what you're really asking is there are the business, I mean, ultimately, unfortunately, everything comes down to business incentives and the business incentives I think post-COVID have started to change. And mm. I think there's there's a shift in in fundamental uh, understanding and also understanding of what are some of the unmet needs and how we can get there. Yes, Moderna, I think, was an outlier, but it was it also highlighted that we can move fast 
and we can do we, we can execute things in parallel if we can put the right resources and attention towards something. Moderna's technology of of delivering this sort of um, mRNA instructions to the cell that they were experimenting with for a number of years before that. But to take that and sort of target the COVID virus, that architecture of the vaccine was actually just developed under a few hours. Wow. That quick, right? And the and and one and one of the enabling factor of that was artificial intelligence, right? These sort of the data science approaches and everything else. And so, and how did you advance that to humans very quickly was this idea of parallel clinical trials. And yes, I understand that it was an emergency situation and all, but there are lessons to be learned from that, that, that we don't, we may, we may not need to think about clinical trials, which is the most uh, prolonged time for a drug to come to market. We can start to think about things a little bit differently because we're now in digital era. We, we can start to think about something called decentralized clinical trials, meaning you don't, you can actually distribute some of the, your clinical trials using these sort of almost uh, like a digital infrastructure where you can connect with patients in their homes. You can send things. This is, a, uh, so I think the decentralized clinical trials and uh, speeding up clinical trials, especially um, when the human trials begin before that, what we call the preclinical data, which comes from animal models, right? We have to test that. And an FDA's Modernization Act of 2.0 actually says that we need to get away from animal models and animal testing because it's sort of cruel. And so this is again, where digital twins and in silico sort of mm -hmm. uh, softwares and AI, and they can help sort of create these simulations of how it will react on animal models. So that's one area you have something called organoid space where we can actually grow tissues and tumor organoids, like for, so we can actually experiment on those and so move things faster. So there's all these sort of pockets of things that are happening. We can start to sort of collapse. And the idea is, can we take this long cycle, life cycle to bring a drug out to market and maybe we can shorten it. And I think we're, we'll see that, how fast we see it. <clears throat> I think it's anybody's guess, but we'll start to see those impacts. I think this is, this is where <clears throat> startups in tech bio particularly are very, very important because they're, they're bringing that engineering first mentality. They're bringing technology first mentality into this space. And they're, they're really saying, okay, look, we see a gap here. So for example, AI drug discovery saw a gap that it took on average four or five years to just find hits. We reduced that to, you know, maybe a month, but in the clinical trial space, there are startups that are looking that, Hey, this is a long period of time. How do we, how do we start to manage patients better? How do we start to predict toxicity better? Uh, so these are these are some of the areas I think the way we can do this. And the last part is the biotech industry itself, big pharma's and all. I think they're starting to also realize that they need to build out certain capabilities, including artificial intelligence. And so there there are partnerships with these tech bio companies that they partner up with by either picking up their the assets they're founding in terms of upfronts and royalties and all. But in some sense, you are right. I think I'm not sure we're going to get away from the idea that which drugs come to market are still going to be based on, you know, financials and business incentives yeah. and reimbursements and everything else. So, so I, I don't know how fast we disrupt that model. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, 
And um, so from an from a investor perspective, I'm just thinking in terms of 2024, 2025, most of the macroeconomic indicators we see uh, are painting a very negative picture of the next year. And I think if you're starting a business in the tech biospace, I'm, I'm assuming one of the key skills you need to demonstrate is resilience and tenacity. So uh, if you could give a, you know, a, an advice for entrepreneurs thinking about entering that sector and raising investment and everything, so what's your perspective for next year and what are the, let's say, the key skills to to thrive you know, in the next, you know, in, in the midst of uncertainty and volatility we see? Right. I, you know, capital's sometimes hard to come by. That is true. Yeah. Um, venture funds are also having a hard time closing funds. And so there, so the capital is uh, limited, but capital is also available at the same time. If you look at artificial intelligence exuberance, there's, there's a lot of money there. Uh, you'll, you're, especially some of the infrastructure companies in AI who are really building these large language models. Seed rounds are $100 million. So in some sense, you might say that there's money available, but for vast majority of the folks, money is hard to come by at the moment. I think it, it will, the squeeze will continue a bit until we, until at least in the United States, we start to get uh, get normalized on this idea that interest rates will, are here to stay. And we'll 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 adjust accordingly. So I think, regardless of tech bio or biotech or or any industry, I think any startup has to really be in a survival mode on how how they manage their sort of cash flow, how they are planning to have plan A, plan B, plan C in terms of the extending that runway. I think it's very important for, especially if a startup's venture backed. To work with their existing investors to 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 really uh, help understand what's what's the possibility of of sort of uh, raising the next rounds and things like that. But but I think one thing remains true regardless of the financial times or that that um, that founders and startups have to really focus on 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 delivering products that have a good market, as we call them, product market fit. If you do. Mm -hmm. uh, you will have uh, your product being utilized and bought or will have a value. But if 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 you have a solution looking for a problem, I think mm -hmm. you'll you'll run into the usual problem. And I think that is that is regardless and agnostic of financial conditions. And so I think continuously to go and sort of look for that product fit, it's very important. And that's what makes uh, and you know, you look at investors who are pre-seed investors or seed test investors or Series A investors or late-stage investors. Everyone's sort of looking at a a common thing, which is, is this product fit for the market? That's the most basic thing you're 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 sort of analyzing. And from an investor perspective, especially when you're an early investor like myself, you're trying to find what do these guys or this founder has an un sort of a unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. What is it that they bring to the table? If it's early enough, of course, there's no validation. Sometimes there's no, well, even the science may be too early in, in some of the cases of the investments we make. But what is the unfair advantage? Sometimes the unfair advantage is that you've validated this in a lab or you have 
you have an interesting partnership already with somewhere where you can actually you have you may have uh, pilot capabilities or you have an amazing team or the co-founders who were just world class in in what they did. And so initially, it's really easy. It's 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 good to identify what's that unfair advantage and what is the market that is currently there and what would you expect the market to be. So as we call it, the, you know, the sort of the the size of the market or addressable market. These are very important things. But once you get started, I think it was really about being resilient in this time period. You get you get the capital. You really got to map out where you need to be. Got to focus on that. I think a lot of times startups do get distracted. Yeah. But it's, it's, this is not one of those times because the money is hard to come by. You stay focused. You got to have plan A and plan B. It's always a survival mode. I think there are some of the things uh, that uh, I've been observing. Yeah, no, no, thanks. Listen, thanks for the for sharing your insights and um, and some guidance as well for entrepreneurs um, starting their business or already along the side journey. Um, so I just want to uh, say thank you again uh, for making the time and sharing your your insights. For me, as being you no, know, I learned a lot in these conversations and made me think about how you no know, tech bio and AI. Are affecting you no know, uh, other industries beyond tech, uh, beyond um, you no know, healthcare. So thank you very much for you know speaking with me, and uh, hope to stay connected. So thank you. No, thank you so much for for having me, and I hope um, uh, your audience will find this interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Thank thank you.